the Good Christophian Talks podcast. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. Thank you so much for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help each one of us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post at the start of each week for you to listen with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to hear. And now, let's hear more about this week's talk. This week's talk is a very recent exhortation by Brother Tim Badger um, entitled The Book of Life. Uh, I think actually the title that he gives in the talk um, is not how it was recorded on the Ecclesial website. Um, You'll see that by giving you the title The Book of Life, you uh, kind of take a little bit of the reveal out of the introduction to Brother Tim's class, but it was still a, um, oh man, such an excellent talk. I so enjoyed this. And I'm very, very excited to share it. Uh, it's a hugely uplifting and thought-provoking exhortation. Uh, this was suggested to us by a couple people. It was posted online as well, so you may have heard it. Um, anyways, it's a um, really great study of the concept of the Book of Life and essentially um, our relationship with the, um, you know, with our salvation and with the covenant uh, that we have entered into, and kind of how that affects our attitude. I'm very thankful to Brother Tim for this talk and excited to share it. Here is The Book of Life by Brother Tim Badger. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, Brother Tim. Thank you, Brother Justin, and good morning, everyone. What a privilege it is to come together to remember the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Our hymn says that we just sang, um, and it's a brilliant hymn, in verse 2, O perfect redemption achieved by his blood to every believer the promise of God. Oh, how can we thank him, Christ Jesus our Lord, by faith and obedience to his living word. And that's what we want to think about this morning, brothers and sisters, particularly that perfect redemption that has been achieved by the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really what we want to do this morning, brothers and sisters, is is actually just revel in the joy of salvation. That's what we're going to do this morning. And and I, I think perhaps maybe this morning, if you're used to having a furrowed brow, um, nothing wrong with that. Obviously, when you take the bread and wine, perhaps this morning, you will have a smile on your face as well as you take the bread and wine, as we remember the salvation that we have in Christ. We call, and rightly so from a scriptural point of view, we call our master Lord and Savior. And that's our focus this morning, particularly the fact that he's our Savior. But you can't go one without the other. Christ is not just a Savior. He's the Lord of our life, and we follow him because of what he's done for us. So let's revel um, this morning, brothers and sisters, in the joy of salvation. That's what, that's what we're going to do. Now, before we do this, I've got to tell you we're going to be using two books this morning. One is the Bible, and I've come across another book that I want to use um, and share with you this morning. Um, I came across it a few years ago now, and it's a fantastic book. And I'm going to tell you about it this morning as part of this theme of salvation. Now, I love, I personally love books. Um, when, when I came over from Canada, uh, 
I had to leave all my books at home, so I put them in a pallet, and I was waiting for years. And uh, finally, when I got married, I obviously knew it was going to be here for good, so we shipped the, uh, the pallets over on the boat and got my books, which was great. But the book that I'm telling you about is not in that, uh, wasn't on that pallet. In fact, it's far better than any book that was on that pallet and that's currently in our house. It's a really old book um, and it's really fascinating. Uh, this book has a lot of really relevant information for us today about life in Christ. And it's interesting because, brothers and sisters, until I heard about this book, I was always under the impression that the Bible was the only book that was important and relevant for learning about God in his ways and how he works. It was certainly written before the Bible, this book. Now, I know you're probably wondering if I'm serious and you might have a little nervous thing welling up in your mind thinking, what's going on? Um, but I'm telling you, this is true. And this book has had a significant impact on how I think about God and my relationship with him. It's not a self-help book, this book, and it's nothing like it. But I reckon it has more power to change you and affect you than any other self-help book than you can find. And it's not a novel, this book. It's not a novel that you can read. But I'm telling you that what it's about is more moving and more gripping than any novel you've ever read. Now, I actually haven't read this book. Um, but I'm pretty clear on what's in it. And I know little bits and pieces of what probably is in the book. Um, but just knowing this book is special because just the fact that this book exists, brothers and sisters, is what makes it really powerful. And also what's in it. So what is in this book? Well, the interesting thing is, brothers and sisters, this book only contains names. That's it. It's just a big book of names. It's literally a catalog of names. And in normal circumstances for you and me, having a book of just names is pretty boring, right? The COVID register is a pretty boring book. I mean, it's nice because this is who's able to come together under government restrictions. And that's lovely, the, the fellowship that we can share. But uh, you've probably been to places that have visitor books before, and some people like, you know, ro rolling through the visitor book and see who, who came in the past and who was there. I don't personally find those really riveting myself. Um, I know there's Brother John here loves to talk about his wedding register book that he's had over the years, and he finds that interesting, and it is from a historical point of view, who was married and when. This book's way better than that, way, way more important than, than that register. There's only names in this book. You know, we know some names in this book, brothers and sisters. The brothers and sisters who some years ago had to flee Iran because of their belief in the truth, they're in that book. Their names are in that book. I don't know their names. You might not either. I'm in this book. My name's there. I don't know what page it's on, but it's in that book. And I'm living in Australia, attending Brighton, in a country that allows amazing freedoms. And those brothers and sisters that were in Iran and myself are both in the book. We could be on the same page. I don't even speak their language. I don't even know them, brothers and sisters. I've never met them. There are brothers and sisters listed in this book, brothers and sisters, that are from the Brighton Ecclesia. There's names in this book that are sitting in this hall right now. There's names in this book of brothers and sisters from the Soweto Ecclesia. There's names in this book of those who go to Potenka Ecclesia in the rainforest of Guyana. There's those from the Nottingham Ecclesia, 
the La Paz Ecclesia in Bolivia. There's believers from the Ephesus Ecclesia, Tea Tree Gully, Christchurch, Sardis, Adelaide, Perth Central, Auckland, Cambridge, Antioch, Southern Vales, Eastern Suburbs and Eastern Torrens, East Torrens, the Gold Coast. There's brothers and sisters that used to live in the Lycus Valley. They're in that book. The Stuttgart Ecclesia, Santos, Ealing, and Corinth. They're all in there. And some people in that book, brothers and sisters, have fallen asleep thousands of years ago. But then there are names in there of people that are still alive today, right here in this room. In this book, there are those who were doormen and those who were the ecclesial maintenance men and still others who never had the experience of being part of an ecclesia ever because of the circumstances in which they lived. There are sisters in this book, brothers and sisters, who never had children and some who had more than 10. There are brothers who were fathers and grandfathers listed in this book and still brothers who were never fathers at all but could feel the great blessing of sharing the reality of having an eternal father that was shared with all believers of all time in every name in that book. There are brothers and sisters, sorry, there are brothers in this book who currently wear suits and ties, who go to meetings faithfully and reverently, and there are brothers in this book who never wore a tie. There are some people in this book who wore robes, and also some who wore rags when they prayed to God and shared the bread and wine. There's all sorts of people from all sorts of cultures, brothers and sisters. Even brothers and sisters who lived at the same time in the same culture, but they just did things differently according to their conscience and their reverential faith. They're all in there. Some of their names are on the same page right next to each other. There are artists in there, there's tradies in there, there's doctors and homeless. There are sisters who only ever wore skirts in public and also sisters who grow up wearing pants. They're all in there. There are those who have made so many mistakes in their life, brothers and sisters, and those who made even a few more because they were just weak, as we all are. There are those in this book who prayed faithfully with thee and thou and those who reverently used you and your while they were still alive. There were still others who prayed in the common Greek language, others in Hebrew, Spanish, Croatian, Mandarin. There are those who lived in Panama in a shack with a dirt floor who could barely get clean water in a bucket, and those who lived in Adelaide who drove a BMW and had fancy granite bench tops in their kitchen. There are those who just learned the truth and those who had family in the truth for five generations. There are those who are young people listed in this book, and there are those who are 100 years old or more. There are some in this book, brothers and sisters, who praised God in their lifetime with the harp, some with the guitar, some with an organ, some with tambourines in a dusty old hole in Jamaica, some who used a blue hymn book, a black one, a green one, a purple one, and some who had a hymn book whose hymns in there we would never recognize because they're written in Spanish, and they're just different songs. There are those who grew up only ever reading the Bible in the King James, but many who read it in their lifetime in Hebrew, in Greek or Aramaic, or translated into the ESV, or La Biblia de las Americas, or the Afrikaans Bible, or the Bislamo Bible, 
Many who never actually even owned their own copy of the Bible because the authorities would never let them. There are saints in this book, brothers and sisters, who through faith subdued kingdoms, who worked righteousness, obtained promises. Some in here stopped the very mouths of lions. Some in this book quenched the violence of fire and escaped the edge of the sword, but out of weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight armies of the aliens. There's some women in this book, brothers and sisters, who received their dead raised to life again. And still, there's others in this book who were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, there's others in this book who had trials of mockings and scourgings. Their names are there. They had chains and imprisonments. There are those listed in this book who were stoned, who were sawn in two, who were tempted, who were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. There are names in this book of those who were subjected to the trials and the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church, who had to wade through the perverse and deceitful doctrines by a persistent faith in the real Christ and the enduring hope of Israel. There are those who were named for us in Scripture, We know two of them definitely. Hebrews 11 has lots of the names, but there's more listed in Philippians. We're told that Euodia and Syntyche both have their names in that book of life. These are two sisters, brothers and sisters, who a couple thousand years ago were having some sort of issue in ecclesial life. Maybe it was a character clash. Maybe they had issues about whatever roster they were working on. I don't know. We don't know the issue of Euodia and Syntyche, but their names are in there. And despite their issues... They've been in there for a long time. The amazing thing about this book, brothers and sisters, the one outstanding feature is that everyone in this book, without exception, was a sinner who had faith in the true gospel of Christ Jesus and who chose to follow him and know him, either by looking forward in faith to the Messiah promised or looking back in faith to him. Every single name in that book had needed or does need forgiveness. Everyone in this book has been touched by the sacrifice of Christ and redeemed by that perfect redemption and the salvation that comes through him. These names were those who believed in the truth of the gospel preached and desired to follow Jesus Christ and forsake a life of sin. This book is called the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. What's the intent of this book, brothers and sisters? Only names in this book will be given eternal life. And these names have been known from the foundation of the world. In a very real sense, because of the certainty of the grace and promises of God and faith in the gospel, these people, dead or alive now, have eternal life. We can learn so much about God from this book, brothers and sisters, and so much about Christ and we can learn so much about each other. It's intended to deeply affect how we see our brothers and sisters. And this is exactly 
how the Apostle Paul used it in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4. It can change our approach to each other, how we handle issues, ecclesial life, differences, preferences. This book says a lot to us, brothers and sisters, which is why Paul says in Philippians 4, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, not who, whose names might be, they are, brothers and sisters. Reflecting on this book deepens our appreciation for what's been done and what this means this morning when we come to remember the Lord through bread and wine. It gives us great insight into our salvation. It reminds us that our saving hope in Christ is not tied to culture. It's not tied to how we happen to do things now. It's not tied to the format of our ecclesia that we run currently. It's not tied to personal preferences. It's altogether greater than these things. The truth is none of those things. It's far more profound. What it is tied to is something that doesn't change. It's timeless, brothers and sisters. This book shows us that our salvation and the gift of eternal life by grace is tied to the saving truth of the gospel message, something which has never changed. It shows that we are connected to those in the first century by nothing other than what we believe and how we take up our cross and follow Christ. I believe this book contains the highest level of encouragement for us all by the grace of God. Now, this book of life, brothers and sisters, is mentioned a number of times in Scripture. It comes up in Exodus chapter 32. It's an Old Testament concept and new. It's mentioned many times. The New Testament um, refers to it a number of times, and so does Revelation. We're told in Revelation 13 that those names who are written in this book are those who didn't worship the beast and its system of false apostasy because they believe in the truth of the gospel, the real gospel. And it's connected to the sin-covering name of Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus refers to this book in Luke chapter 10. Come, come to Luke chapter 10. This is a great little reference. Um, can you just keep in mind, as we read this little segment in Luke chapter 10, the connection that this reference to the book has to Philippians chapter 4. I just want you to see if you can sort of notice the link. How Paul uses the book of life in Ephesians 4. Um, this is the, the, the account of the 70 being sent out by the Lord. And they return, the 70 that, that were chosen return in verse 17. And look at what it says in verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, with joy, which is a really big theme in Philippians, but anyway. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, somewhat enigmatically, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then Jesus says to them, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. However, Jesus says this, this is great. However, don't get too excited about these special Holy Spirit powers I've given you, as good as they are. Nevertheless, verse 20, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice in this, 
that your names are written in heaven. That's incredible, brothers and sisters. So just as in the moment you might get caught up with like these, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that have been given especially to these 70 to go out and, and heal things like snake bites and whatever it is, Jesus says that's great and that's exciting, but there's something far more profound than this little taste of power. And the profound thing that you really need to find your joy in is the eternal salvation through me. Your names are written in heaven. That's where the real joy comes from, which is why Paul in Ephesians 4 commands them to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, right in the context of talking about that book of life. That's beautiful, brothers and sisters. The names in this book are the saints through the saving work of Christ from the foundation of the world. And we're told, brothers and sisters, that in a sense, the only thing that really can happen with this book, the changes that can happen in this book, is only that they can be blotted out. We're told that. They can be blotted out. But that's only when a believer turns his back well and truly on Christ, leaves the truth of the gospel, leaves Christ, and turns aside. The language of Hebrews 10, trampling the Son of God underfoot in that context, insulting the Spirit of grace. That's someone who outright rejects what's been offered. You know, brothers and sisters, the exhortation that comes from this is that we do need as believers to have a great measure of confidence in God's salvation. He is willing to give you the kingdom and one can be certain that if they have been given the privilege to know Christ and believe in the truth of the gospel preached, that their name is in the book of life. This book speaks of the reluctance of God to let perish rather than the reluctance of God to save. It is powerful motivational force for us to see the big picture and let that impact who we are and how we treat others now. And I believe, brothers and sisters, it motivates our discipleship. We're impressed by the grace, the mercy, the undeserved nature of the fact that our names are in the book of life. And we're motivated by that. I believe, brothers and sisters, when we have a certainty in our faith about that salvation that we sung about together, it will lead us to stronger unity together. It will motivate us to hold fast and it will strengthen our resolve to obey. You know, there's this tension in scripture, and, and it's, been a, it's kind of like an old chestnut in some ways, partly exacerbated by um, other groups that might be around us that sort of possibly give the wrong nuance to this idea. But there's this tension in scripture of, are we saved now or are we saved in the future? And the scripture uses both senses of salvation, brothers and sisters, both. So the book of life raises this question. Well, how does salvation work? Is it now or is it future? Well, there's many passages in scripture that indicate really clearly that salvation is a thing to come. It's a future thing. So Romans 5, we shall be saved from wrath. We shall be saved by his life. Romans 8, he will give life to our mortal bodies. 2 Timothy 4, he will give me a crown of righteousness on that day, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me, and not to me only, but all those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, the Lord will preserve me, or the word is save me, for his heavenly kingdom. Titus 3, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
You know, the little passage that say, well, says that, well, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Those are all capturing this idea of redemption in the future sense. However, brothers and sisters, that's not the full picture of the power of the atoning work of Christ. Because there's multitude of verses that explain to us in absolute confidence that when we come to Christ in faith, we have been saved. We read one this morning. Romans 5 says this, having been justified by faith. That's a fact, brothers and sisters. We, when you come to Christ in faith, you've been justified, reconciled to God. Romans 8, he has made me free from the law of sin and death. Free, the apostle says at the time of his writing. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. Bracket, by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2 verse 8, by grace you have been saved. He says it again, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Titus 3, but according to, verse 5 to 7, but according to his mercy, he saved us having been justified by grace. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast. Acts 2, their preaching was be saved from this perverse generation. Acts 11, these are the words by which you and your whole household will be saved when you believe. Acts 15, the question is, well, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Acts 16, verse 31, believed on the Lord, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 5, let's just soak these in, brothers and sisters. Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, or the word there is condemnation, but has passed from death to life. And brothers and sisters, I don't know how clearly you believe or feel that, but let that resonate with you this morning, the words of our master. If you truly believe in Christ, you have passed from death to life and you have eternal life. John 6, he who believes in me has everlasting life. 1 John 5, you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, be convinced that you have eternal life. That's beautiful, brothers and sisters. Let's go to our reading for this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is a staggering passage, and it's so encouraging. Here is a passage on the joy of salvation. Look what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Now listen to verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according, unless we just kind of got that wrong, or in case we're, we're kind of leaning towards this idea of like, yes, he saved us, but, but our works are going to get us through that's not what he's saying. And he clarifies that. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
That is incredible, brothers and sisters. Don't think that the holy calling there is, is a sense in which like, well, like you've, you've got to be, you've got to match up to a certain standard. Otherwise you might not quite make it. No, he's saying the point is we need to grasp hold of in faith, the fact that we have been saved. It's not going to be by ourselves. And now we're going to be motivated to try and line our lives up with that fact, holiness. Look what it says in verse 10. But now has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love this expression. Look what it says. Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now listen to verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Well, no doubt, brothers and sisters, I... The mystery of how Paul is motivated is because he fully grasped the certainty of his hope and the salvation through Christ. That's why he was never going to be ashamed. Maybe, maybe we're ashamed of the gospel because we haven't quite grasped how certain our salvation is by faith. Maybe we shy away from sharing it with others because we're not really totally confident deep down inside. I don't know. But clearly... The confidence that Paul has here in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is connected to his exhortation. This is something you cannot be ashamed of. There's no reason to be ashamed of this because it's absolutely certain. Then look what he says. I love this expression. For I know whom I have believed. Like he's just like, he's telling Timothy, I, look, I know exactly who I believe in. And it ain't changing and it's fully certain. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now, there's a bit of discussion about what's that thing that Paul's committed to him until that day. And I think the best translations and the best kind of look at the Greek there, there's no doubt in my mind, brothers and sisters and others, it seems, that what he's talking about, what he committed to God is his own life. He's committed it to God and he's absolutely persuaded he's going to keep it until that day, which is exactly how he ends this letter. I know there's a crown of life laid up for me, crown of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful example of how Paul grasped his salvation. I want to come to something else he says in Romans chapter 5 and just have a look at this in the remaining minutes. This salvation... Romans chapter 5, listen to what the Apostle Paul says and soak this in. After his argument about the faith of Abraham and how everything is based on faith, our justification comes through faith, he then says this to those who believe. Therefore, Romans 5 verse 1, having been justified by faith that's a position that you are in this morning brothers and sisters unless in your own private personal life you know you do not believe and you've rejected god and it's all a sham but if you do believe even if you're just a struggling normal sinner like everyone else in this room if you do believe you have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ just think about peace with God for a second. I used to think, brothers and sisters, of the peace of God in a subjective way. Um, it was a feeling that I, I, 
that I should always feel, I thought. And it was something that I, I waited to come over me, this, this peace of God. And when it came to me, when I felt like I was at peace with God, then I could be sure of it. It was something subjective in my mind. I don't know if this is how sometimes you've thought before, but I, if I subjectively in my own mind got to a point of peace, then I could feel like I had it, like I've got the peace of God. Now this is not true, brothers and sisters. That's not the right way of thinking about it. The peace of God is not a subjective feeling that when you've gone through a good week and you've done a little bit less sin than normal, then you feel like, oh, I'm doing actually pretty good. I do feel at one with God, at peace with God. That is not how the peace of God works in Romans chapter five. It is not a subjective feeling you hang around waiting for to experience when things are going particularly well in your discipleship. Brothers and sisters, take in this morning that the peace of God is a fact. That is a fa When you come to Christ in faith, you have peace with God. This, the idea here is that you've been reconciled, made one. That is the position that you are constituted into by argument in Romans chapter 5. The peace of God is not something you're waiting around for trying to feel if things are going right. You actually have it. It's a fact, brothers and sisters. You are at peace with God by position and by his doing through Christ. This is crucial. It is as factual as the existence of Christ himself. And from this, when truly grasped by a believer, will come a peace of mind that intrudes on your mindset, thinking, and life. It's something you can fall back on as a fact, not something you fleetingly try and catch when things are going particularly well. And the truth of it, brothers and sisters, the fact of it will have its effect on your mind so that it is something you can feel and experience. It's entirely not based on my doing. That's my position that I've been given by the grace of God in Christ. And when we feel that, brothers and sisters, and know that, then out of that comes the peace of mind that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4. Your name is in the book of life, and out of that springs a great peace in the trust in God, knowing that he's for us, not against us. It can motivate you. Don't measure the peace of God on how your day is going, brothers and sisters. Measure it based on the position that he's put you in by your faith in Christ. Peace here is reconciliation in its ultimate sense. Apart from being in Christ and having salvation in him, brothers and sisters, every person here is still spiritually at war, aren't we? We're still, if, if, you don't, if you don't have salvation in Christ, if you have not come to him in faith and been baptized into the true gospel, you are in a state of enmity with God. That's true for every unbaptized person here. There is a state of enmity between you and God in that sense, in the apostles arguing, no matter what we think about it. Our natural state is opposed to God and will not submit to him. But the person who's been justified by faith through grace is in a state of peace with God, independent of what you might feel about your own struggle with sin moment to moment. You indeed will go through temptation even when you've been justified. Romans 7 makes that clear. But you're with him and your salvation is spoken of in terms of an accomplished fact. That's how scripture speaks of it. Do you know Romans 4 says this, if you just look at verse 16, just so we're really clear on this, Romans 4 makes this powerful point in arguing about Abraham and others. He says, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise is sure. 
Now that's a key argument of the Apostle Paul. This is, our salvation is based on faith, so it's according to grace, so that we can be absolutely confident. If it was based on anything else, brothers and sisters, everyone in this room should be doubting. We ain't going to make it based on law or some other version, but it's according to faith, so God can make it by grace, so the promise is sure to everyone, to all the seed. We don't have to worry. This is the peace that we experience. Don't ever think that the passage in Philippians chapter 2, that sometimes that's quoted because we're talking about salvation, that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do not ever think, brothers and sisters, that that passage as is sometimes quoted, means that you've got to roll up your sleeves and do the hard yards and you might be able to work it out. That is not what the Greek is saying in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is arguing that they've been given salvation of Christ. Now they need to outwork it in their life. Show it. And the proof of that is the next verse. He says, because it's not even you. It's God who works in you, both to do and to will his good purpose. Salvation is not something that we try and figure out on our own. It's been given to us, and now we need to show it. We live by the faith of the Son of God. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it really clear, brothers and sisters, doesn't it? You're saved by grace, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So, brothers and sisters, so certain is our salvation that it's spoken of in terms of accomplished fact. Our names are in the book of life. And this is crucial to how we see and work with each other until our Lord comes. And I can personally say, using the words of Colossians 3, and so can you, I died and my life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is my life, appears, then I also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, I aim to put to death my members which are on the earth. A final quote from our brother Islip Collier, Principles and Proverbs. We need not fear, we shall be excluded. If we really desire to be in the kingdom of God, even though we're plain men, with little of the hero in our makeup and nothing in our characters to command the admiration of the world, if we follow the patriarchs in their one outstanding virtue of obedient faith, we shall be guided to all other things needful. Our names are not mentioned in the scripture, nor in the roles of human fame, but they are written in the book of life. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. Please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever service you are listening from to help people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this talk, share it on social media so other people can find it too. For show notes and links to the talk that you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct. We want to encourage everyone to share their thoughts from the talk this week on Facebook or Instagram, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, or on Twitter, where we are at gct underscore podcast. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media platforms. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.